Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here. We're grateful for the chance to again look at your word and uh, just stand in awe of what you were doing in the book of Genesis. I pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith this morning, uh, that these wouldn't just be um, these stories or nice little accounts of things that happened a long time ago, but that really we would see the relevance of these things for our life today. Please help us to uh, just gain a greater appreciation and an awe uh, for what you're doing in the scriptures. Thank you mostly for your son and the forgiveness of sins that we can have in him. Um, we're just grateful, Lord, for your goodness to us, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12 as we begin this morning. Genesis chapter 12. While you're turning there, I just wanted to thank Jeff again for teaching through the book of Job last week. I hope that that study helped you think about suffering and trials in a biblical perspective. Um, there's an instance in the New Testament in which uh, the disciples see a man who has a disability, and they ask, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, that's just not how this worked, neither of them. This is God's plan. And I think Job is kind of an Old Testament example of that. Job didn't sin, and yet he still suffered. And hopefully that book just gives us a little bit better of an understanding as to maybe the reason that we suffer sometimes. It's not always retribution for sins that we've done, but perhaps it is testing uh, in a spiritual sense. So thank you, Jeff, for doing that. I apologize for the handoff. Uh, I did not prepare you guys at all to be reading the book of Job when I last ended with Genesis 11, so that was totally my bad. Um, actually, someone texted me and said, why are we in Job this week? And uh, so I apologize for that. Jeff said it last week, but I will reiterate that a lot of scholars, or I should say some scholars, believe that Job chronologically takes place around the time of Abraham. And so it just made sense for us to take a break from Genesis, pick up the story of Job, and we'll begin today with Abraham. Um, so that's why we made that decision, and let me just put it on your radar that we will be doing that more frequently, jumping around all of these books as the year goes on, particularly as we get into the book of, like, uh, Kings. We're going to be in Kings one day, then we'll be in a minor prophet the next, and then back to Kings, really just trying to preserve this chronological component of the Old Testament. So we'll definitely be jumping around some more in the future. Just wanted to make you aware of it now, and I will try to do better for preparing you for that so it's not just coming out of the blue somewhere. So thank you, Jeff, uh, for all that you did last week. Here we are in Genesis chapter 12, though, and I wanted to give you a quick uh, reminder of the events that took place up to this point, beginning with what is the key verse of the book of Genesis, one of the pivotal verses in the whole Bible, Genesis 3.15. I hope you haven't memorized by time we're done with the study of Genesis. It is that critical to what God is doing in this book. I actually included the NASB's uh, version this morning because I thought it was particularly neat how they uh, translate Genesis 3.15. The NASB puts it this way, and I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. 
he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I particularly like this translation because it capitalizes those references to this descendant. He, capital H, him, capital H, very clearly demonstrating for us that this is talking about Christ. Here, God is addressing the devil in the garden, and already the plan of redemption is being set in motion. We're already anticipating a descendant of this woman to bruise the head of the serpent. I just think that is awesome. And really, I've said this before, but Genesis, the Bible really, is not a history book in the sense that we might think it is, that we might even want it to be, right? It records things that happened in ancient times, and we want to know, tell me about these ancient civilizations, tell me about their technological advances, and Genesis just doesn't do that. It's not concerned about telling us the details about every single person who ever lived. It is concerned, though, about advancing the plot or the narrative of this descendant who is one day going to bruise the serpent's head. And so because of that, we move quickly in these first pages of Genesis through the major characters. So we start in Adam, and then we jump forward a hundred more than a hundred, hundreds of years, to Noah. And then from Noah, we fast forward again hundreds of years to Abraham, so that by the time we get to Abraham, people believe that 2,000 years have passed since the time that God made the promise to the introduction of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So think about that. I mean, this is pages in my Bible, right? 2,000 years. From our perspective... It's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on the earth. And this is the amount of time that has been eclipsed in 12 chapters in the book of Genesis. And I want you to just think about this. Perhaps people in Abraham's day, God-fearers, people who knew the promise that had been made in the garden are wondering to themselves, what happened? Where's God? Has he forgotten his promise? Is he going to really do what he said he would do those thousands of years ago? Is that descendant of the woman ever going to come and free us from the grip of the serpent? Then we come to Genesis chapter 12, another one of these pivotal events in the Old Testament. We're all looking at it, Genesis chapter 12. I'll just read the first three verses for you. We read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred house to the land that I will show you. Make of you and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Who dishonors you, I will curse. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the first mention that we have in the scriptures of what is called the Abrahamic covenant. I told you a couple of weeks ago that there are a couple of different kinds of covenants in the scriptures. We actually encountered one of those, the Noahic covenant. A covenant is when two people enter into an agreement with one another. God told Noah back in Genesis uh, 8 or 9 in that area that he would never destroy the earth by a flood again. And this covenant is unconditional. There wasn't anything Noah had to do to make sure that God kept his promise. God just says, listen, Noah. I'm never going to destroy the entirety of the earth because of a flood. So here we are with the Abraham, which also appears to be unconditional. 
I will say that that is not entirely agreed upon. There are people who think that the Abrahamic covenant required Abraham to do something to keep his end of the bargain for God to keep that promise. However, one of the things that makes us think that Abraham had no requirements of his own to keep is the events that we see in Genesis 15. You don't need to turn there, but perhaps you read it this week and you saw this thing about animals being cut in half and you're like, what in the world is going on here? Well, as best as we understand, in ancient times, one of the ways people would enter into agreements with one another is that they would actually take animals and cut them in half, and then both parties would walk through the middle of these animals, and there would kind of be the understanding that if either one of us breaks our end of the bargain, we're going to end up like these animals. Now, how much of a deterrent do you think that was to breaking a covenant? You'd probably think twice before you backed out of an agreement you had made with someone. If you remember that cow that's been cut in half, you're like, okay, I think I'll keep my word. So as best as we can understand here in Genesis 15, maybe that's what's going on. And if you remember, when these animals are cut in half, Abraham's asleep. And only God goes through, seeming to indicate that God is going to keep his promise here regardless of what Abraham does. Now, regarding these promises to Abraham, again, it's disputed about how many there are, how to categorize them. I'm just going to take the position that there are three categories of promises that God makes to Abraham. The first is that God promises a land to Abraham. You can see mention in chapter 12, but perhaps the best um, description of this land is actually found in chapter 13. So just turn one page over, if you will, to see uh, what God says about this land that will be promised to Abraham. We're in Genesis 13, uh, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, excuse me, Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and west. All land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. This promise is going to be repeated multiple times in the coming chapters, and we are going to see unequivocally that God makes a promise to Abraham, there is going to be a land component to this. It is the land of Canaan, hence why we often call the land of Canaan the promised land. It's what God had promised to Abram to give to him. There's a second, we're still in uh, chapter 13, we'll look at verse 16 tells Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So in addition to land, God promises Abram, you are going to have innumerable offspring, as many as the sand of the sea. In another place, he says, as many as the stars of the heaven. So there's the first two components of this promise, but perhaps the most interesting, found back in chapter 12, Verse 3, right there at the very end, Abram, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And believe it or not, the New Testament actually quotes this promise to Abraham in a couple of different spots. The one that I drew our attention to, which our first question is based off of, is in Galatians chapter 3, when Paul quotes this and says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so I asked you, as our first question together this morning, excuse me, how do you think 
that the gospel is being anticipated in this original promise to Abram. Any thoughts on that? How is the gospel already being prepared for here? Yeah, since yeah. Yeah, I think you said that very well. Uh, does anyone else want to add a little bit to that, perhaps? Maybe you had a little bit different of a take on it. I appreciate you pointing out, Cynthia, that in this promise, there is a um, kind of a, a global effect. It's not just to maybe people that we think of traditionally as Jewish who are beneficiaries of this promise. There is a every nation of the earth is going to be blessed here. Yeah, in Galatians... Paul says that in God making this promise to Abraham that all of the nations will be blessed, it's actually anticipating that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. And of course, we are only justified by faith in whom? Jesus Christ. Yes. And so uh, even just a little bit later in Galatians 3.14, Paul is describing what happened on the cross, and he says, so that in Christ Jesus... The blessing